I'm thrilled to have as my guests on the pod this week, Michael Chernis and Emily Simoness. Michael is a Juilliard-trained stage, TV, and film actor who currently appears as speechwriter Ken Rosie on the CBS series Tommy. You might have also seen him as Piper's brother Cal Chapman on Orange is the New Black, or playing Congressman Edward Tavner in Amazon's Patriot. Michael's movie roles, which we'll get into a little bit on the podcast, include portraying the Tinkerer in Marvel's Spider-Man Homecoming, playing Tom Hanks's first mate Shane Murphy in the excellent Paul Greengrass film Captain Phillips, and appearing opposite Will Smith in 2012's Men in Black 3. The other half of this power couple, Emily Simoness, is the founder and executive director of Space on Ryder Farm, a really cool nonprofit artistic residency program and organic farm located on the grounds of a 225-year-old family homestead in Putnam County, New York. You can learn more about this wonderful institution at spaceonriderfarm.org. But outside their professional accomplishments, these are just wonderfully Midwestern good people whose self-effacing humor and innate intelligence you're going to hear on display in this podcast as we discuss the Cohen brothers, the Big Lebowski. Welcome, Michael and Emily, to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Hi, thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, Jason. Uh, let me just describe what Michael is wearing right now since it's, a, <laughs> since it's an auditory medium. He has an actual Lebowski dude sweater. He's wearing the Guatemalan textile pants. Now, is that a real Lebowski sweater? Uh, yeah, man, this is the, the Lebowski sweater that uh, Pendleton <laughs> makes. Uh, <laughs> How many years ago did you buy that, Michael? I think right before our conflict with the Iraqis. <laughs> Is he going to do the whole movie in character, Emily? Or unclear, unclear. I, I can't. I can't know. Okay, let's start with the few classic Jason Silo story tidbits for why we're here right now. First of all, today I was out for my walk my pandemic walk. Mm. And I was enjoying the blissful reveries of nature, the feeling of the sun on my face after escaping the confines of the house. And right in the middle of this blissful nature walk, what happens? But my phone rings. I look down and it says, Emily Simoness. And I, this not being my first rodeo, I laughed to myself on the street. I said, (laughs) (laughs) I knew exactly what this call was. And what this call was, I've done, what, 78, 79 episodes of this podcast. I've seen all the things that various personality types end up doing when it comes proximate to their time to appear on the podcast. And I said to myself, this is what Emily is doing. What Emily is doing, this is the phone call where she's going to try to back out of participating. So I took the call. And what happened then, Emily? Um, I believe you answered not by addressing me by my name, but rather said, is this the call where you try to back out? And And I said, yes. And then you couldn't hear me. We had like a disconnect. And then you said it again. And I said, yes, that's this call. Yes. And then you said something to the effect of, I don't want to hear anything about it. Click. (laughs) (laughs) And then... I knew a phone call was a bad idea, but I was like, maybe he'll appreciate that I'm like really trying to like not send this via text. Oh, I see. That felt like that. Like that felt like an easier way out, right? Mm -hmm. So then I followed up with what I felt was a thoughtful text about my rationale. (laughs) 
that you think it's freaking hilarious. I'm just surprised that knowing me, you actually thought that either you're a genius, a content genius, and you knew that those steps would make for great podcast fodder, either that, in which case, kudos to you. I bow down to the content master that you are, or you somehow knowing my personality actually thought that I would allow you to wriggle off the hook. I think I knew I was scared. I'm going to be clear. I was scared to call you because I knew that it wouldn't go well. However, I thought that I would still try. So no, I'm not a genius. I'm a genius in other ways. Okay. Well, I think that I I know you, but I maybe thought that maybe this would be different question mark, but it wasn't. Well, you are who you are. Thank you for being you. Thank you. Thank you for being you. Well, here we are. I am so thrilled to have both of you on. This is one of the movies that in doing the podcast, you save for kind of the right moment. And much like many of the things in the movie itself, you wait for sort of this kismet moment to occur where it suddenly becomes so obvious that the thing that has to happen is that you're going to do this movie talking to these people. That's what has occurred. That's how we ended up here. I don't even know how it occurred, but it somehow just came up and it kind of happened in the right way. And I'm so glad because revisiting this movie in the past week has been Oh, such what I needed in this pandemic time. I know, Emily, we have some interesting stories about your first attempt to watch the movie with Michael. We'll get to that. But let's start with Michael because anecdotally, he's told me a couple of things via text. I don't know if this is true. Michael, you claim you've seen the movie at least 100 times. Can that possibly be true? Uh, Yeah, man, I think that uh, that's probably conservative. Seriously? Like, for real? Um. How could you see anything a hundred times? How many times have you seen uh, the Grateful Dead or Grateful Dead cover bands? Very good point. Very good point. But those are at least different every time, some would say. So is my perception of the Big Lebowski. (laughs) All joking aside, I don't know that I've seen it a hundred times. But it is, I think, my favorite movie ever, if there can be such a thing. Um, And um, it's just been with me for so long i i saw it in the theater when it came out in 98 with um my best friend and his girlfriend at the time and his brother at a shopping mall in ohio we were home from uh, spring break from drama school and um i think we made a may have done a j in the parking lot and <laughs> i remember not loving it the first time we were my buddy and I, who I went with, we were were both rabid Coen Brothers fans, and we were so excited for the new Coen movie and had all these great actors in it. And I remember leaving the movie theater and being like, eh, I don't know, I didn't get it. And then um, you know, watched it just a ton more on VHS over the years and then eventually on DVD, and just it's just become like with certain friends of mine, just lines from the movie are just jokes and quotes that we do to each other that I think we forget are even lines from the movies. Sometimes, <laughs> you know? Oh, nice Mormon. I couldn't agree with you more. I would say, as a Coen Brothers freak myself, I don't think I really got the movie until watching it for this podcast. Really? Like, yeah, I mean, I had the same experience you did because, and I realized in sort of watching some of the materials on uh, the making of the movie, why that was for me. And I'd probably like you in 1998, you know, the, the Coen Brothers movie that had come out just before this was Fargo. Did you look in his citation book? Yeah. 
Last vehicle he rode in was a tan Sierra at 2.18 a.m. Under a plate number, he put DLR. I figured they stopped him or shot him before he could finish filling out the tag number. Uh-huh. So I got the state looking for a Sierra with a tag starting DLR. They don't got no match yet. I'm not sure that I agree with you 100% on your police work there, Lou. Yeah? Yeah. I think that vehicle there probably had dealer plates. DLR. Oh. Jeez. Say, Lou, did you hear the one about the guy who couldn't afford personalized plates, so he went and changed his name to J3L2404? Yeah, that's a good one. Yep. And Fargo, to me, was one of those experiences in a movie theater that is like someone got inside your brain and is doing something so subtle and so brilliantly just for you, it feels like, that the experience of watching that movie was so hilarious and profound and cathartic and amazing that when this movie came out next, it just was one of those bizarre things about like, I'm not going to say the wrong movie at the wrong time for them because this turned out to be such an important movie for them and such an iconic movie for them. But I think for all of us as viewers, it's so hard to follow up a movie as complete and pure as Fargo is. And Lebowski was always this thing that was that I was kind of like, yeah, I don't get why everyone's like so nuts about that when there's all these other Coen Brothers movies that I feel so much attraction to more immediately. But then when I sat down and watched this like last week after we decided to do this, I just was in a space to receive its genius and brilliance. Mm. And I think I'd probably finally seen enough other movies to sort of understand more about where this movie was pitched in terms of being kind of a neo-noir and, and sort of both celebrating and sending up some of those like Raymond Chandler kind of Los Angeles detective movies that I've watched a lot of right. since, since 1998. And then just having more appreciation for the world that they create cinematically and everything that they do. So having said that, Emily, yes. one of the hilarious texts that we got last week was... There was like a rapid flurry where somehow we decided to do this and there was a lot of excitement between Michael and myself and yourself. And then sort of the next thing that happened, I didn't hear anything after I was told via text that like you were guys were settling down to watch it and that you had never seen it, I think was the was what Michael was saying. It's a true story. So then I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like we're gonna be able to have this experience. Like we have Michael who's like avowed, loves the film, has seen it so many times. So I knew, I wasn't telling you guys this, but I knew that my experience was sort of someone who had kind of, come late to appreciate it, even though I appreciated a lot of their other movies. And then I thought the perfect third person is Emily, who's never seen it. And then the next thing that happened was like a day went by with no further reports from the night before screening. And I was like, what happened here? And then I think Michael, um, I'm not even sure if he had you on the text. He might've texted me solo to be like, yeah, she made me turn it off two thirds of the way through. So tell Michael and I and the listeners what exactly was going through your experience. Um, it's interesting hearing both of you. I mean, I knew that Michael, when you first watched it, Michael, you didn't, you you said you didn't love it. And then it's interesting, Jason, to also hear from you on the heels of Fargo that it like, you know, it it it's take it took a second. Um, what exactly did I say to you, Michael? I was like, I realize this is a good movie. I don't want to watch it right now. Didn't I say something like that? That was pretty close. I mean, to be fair, we watched it kind of late at night. We put it on and um and I was a little worried the way that you are when you share things that you really love. 
that you also know are, are maybe considered like dorky or cultish or whatever. Like, so Jason, I don't know how much your listeners know, but you and I both share an affinity for improvisational music, especially the Grateful Dead and the, the offshoots of the Grateful Dead after Jerry's passing. And um, it was always a moment for me in high school and college and as a young adult where I'd have to eventually confess to a girl that I was dating that I liked the Grateful Dead <laughs> and see like what the reaction was. And I feel like the Big Lebowski lives in a similar so psychic spiritual space where when you're like on a second or third date and someone says, what's your favorite movie? And I'm like, am I honest or do I lie? Like, you know, <laughs> do I say the Godfather? Do I say like some something cool and interesting? some foreign film or do I just admit that I'm a little Lebowski urban achiever um, and proud <laughs> of all of them. Um, <clears throat> so Emily, we're watching it and I'm so, and I say to her beforehand, I'm like, just don't worry about the plot. Like it's going to feel like it's really plot heavy and there's all these characters and there's that you're supposed to be following this caper, but it doesn't matter. It's just, you know, let, let go of trying to figure out the whodunit of it. And I'm um, trying not to interject too much throughout the movie and about two thirds of the way through, she goes, I'm tired. Can we turn it off? Oh my God, Emily, soul crusher. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, I knew you wouldn't like it. And she's like, oh no, it's not that I don't like it. I can see that it's a good movie. I understand why it would be considered a good movie. It's just too slow. Emily, how can you, I mean, okay, first of all, you guys have been married for how long? Three years? Five. Five. five it's five years? It'll be five in September. Yeah. Okay. Now, I was at your wedding. In the mm -hmm. five years, it's <laughs> never come up that you would watch The Big Lebowski together. It has. Oh, no, it's come up. And she's roundly rejected it. Wow. Yeah. So, Emily, knowing this about your husband and knowing that your husband is the is a dear and sweet soul who would <laughs> protectively share the most important things in a spirit of cautiousness and sort of making sure that you had the information that you needed in order to experience something in the way that he's come to know over the you know 25 yeah. plus years that he's experienced this specific thing that to try and create the right mm -hmm. environment for you knowing all of that you couldn't just force another 45 minutes out of yourself i'm not proud <laughs> <laughs> I'm not proud of my actions. I knew that they would be scrutinized. I feel embarrassed. And at the same time, I needed to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I also, in my defense, which there's not a lot of defense, but uh, in my defense, I knew that I was going to have to talk about it and I was starting to fade. And so I was like, I, I, I can't proceed. So you put your notebook down. <laughs> I put my notebook down, my steno pad with my pen and, and we resumed on another day. Did it look like this? Did it look like this is page one? Yeah. It's like this. Two. Yeah, right, exactly. Right, yeah. Right, yes, okay. so many pages. I filled a whole notebook. And yeah. did you ever actually go back to complete the film? Yes. Oh, good for you. Like 20 minutes like 20 minutes ago. Maybe 20 minutes ago. <laughs> we may have pushed to 3:30 because I needed to finish the film. Oh, that's what the 3:30 push was. <laughs> oh my god, this is so per I could not ask for a more perfect story than you guys are providing. 
This is because you guys are involved in the theatrical arts and you know what storytelling is. So you've done this for the purpose of the podcast. Thank you. Radical honesty. Radical honesty. No, but I think that it's a it, it is the type of movie, even if you and I'm assuming, Emily, that you that you love or even like other Coen Brothers films. I love Fargo. It's one of my all time favorites. Fargo is amazing. And by the way, this is another thing that will that will inspire you because we're doing this. Lee Wilkoff and I are going to do Fargo next week. <gasps> and he said to say hello what to both of you. Oh, really? So oh, he um, he slid him. into my DMs, as the kids say, on Instagram. And he said, hey, I'd love to come back I on. And I said, it. okay. And he gave me a long list of movies. And one of them just happened to be Fargo. And I was posting a bunch of random images of Lebowski as they would come up. And he was liking all of those. And I said, nice. man, it's so perfect to do Fargo kind of after doing Lebowski because I think for a lot of people, like we said, that sort of was that was almost in the way of my receptors to this particular Cohen's movie. Yeah. yeah. And in fairness, Emily really wanted to do Fargo instead of Lebowski on your podcast. And she's from Minnesota and, um, true. you know, relates to the, that, those, those snowbound people. So, so deeply. Um, but uh, I really pushed the Lebowski agenda. So this is this is ultimately my fault. Well, you know, it's a story of men, once again, sort of preventing women from doing what they really should and ought to do. Yeah. Tell, yeah. <laughs> Tell us all this time. Yeah, you did this to yourself, Emily. Really, when you think about it. She kidnapped herself, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So where to start for me with the movie? Is it the greatest use of a Dylan song in the history of cinema? Yes. But there could be no better fit for the blown out, raspy, smoke-inhaled voice of the dude than... The man in me. The Dylan song is just so brilliant. They, so good that they use it twice, which is yeah. kind of hilarious in a in a movie. I think it plays over one of the long dream sequences too. And the performances are just again. I mean, it's a Coen Brothers movie, so that's I guess to be expected. Like that, all the acting is just so freaking good. What is that? The acting is insane. Yeah, in all the, the Coen Brothers movies, but especially Fargo, Lebowski, there's a there's a kind of almost theatricality to the acting that is still really grounded in a kind of reality, but it the characters are so rich and so, you know, you think about Walter Sobchak. What John Goodman is doing is so over the top and so large, but it works and it feels real. And it's the, the writing is so specific. Donnie was a good bowler and a good man. He was, he was one of us. He was a man who loved the outdoors and bowling. And as a surfer, he explored the beaches of Southern California from La Jolla to Leo Carrillo and up to Pismo. He died. He died as so many young men of his generation before his time. In your wisdom, Lord, you took him. As you took so many bright, flowering young men at Quezon, at Londoc, at Hill 364. These young men gave their lives. So did Donnie. Donnie, who loved bowling. 
And so, Theodore Donald Karabatsos, in accordance with what we think your dying wishes might well have been, we commit your final mortal remains to the bosom of the Pacific Ocean, which you love so well. Good night, sweet prince. I don't want to say it feels like a play because I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying that in any way that other than just like the the specificity is is so good. It's so it's so unique. It's so colorful. Incredible performances. Yeah, the writing is ridiculous. I kept writing down just line after line that was so writerly, for lack of a less pretentious term. Yeah. And also not in a way that sort of lesser writers or lesser movies can be about where like every character sounds like the writer. You know what I mean? Like in this movie, mm. you have such diversity of voices with the way the characters talk. And I guess in every Coen Brothers movie, that's like an incredible strength of theirs. Yet it all does have that theatrical overlay that you're kind of talking about, Michael, at the same time. But, you know, the way Maud Lebowski talks is, Right. Couldn't be more different than the way the dude talks. Right. And yet both are written so brilliantly. Does the female form make you uncomfortable, Mr. Lebowski? Uh, is that what this is a picture of? In a sense, yes. My art has been commended as being strongly vaginal, which bothers some men. The word itself makes some men uncomfortable. Vagina. Oh, yeah? Yes, they don't like hearing it and find it difficult to say, whereas without batting an eye, a man will refer to his dick or his rod or his Johnson. Johnson? All right, Mr. Lebowski. Let's get down to cases. And when you listen to the making of John Goodman, so people always come up to him and be like, you guys just ripped and made all that stuff up, right? He's like, no, no, no. There is like dot, dot, dot in the script to indicate the pauses. Yeah. And the rhythm of the language is so specific for every character. I would also say like Totoro and Sam Elliott are like equally oh insane. God. Like with Sam Elliott is just, it's beautiful and nuts. Now this is your story I'm about to unfold. It took place back in the early nineties. Just about the time of our conflict with Saddam and the Iraqis. I only mention it because sometimes there's a man, I won't say a hero, because what's a hero? But sometimes there's a man, and I'm talking about the dude here. Sometimes there's a man, well, he's the man for his time and place. He fits right in there. And that's the dude in Los Angeles. And I was saying to Michael before, I was like, okay, so just right before, like, what's the utility of the John mm -hmm. Turturro character? Like, what is the dramaturgical? And he was like, I mean, there's just like their, they're, he's like the other bowler. He's their rival. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, he's their enemy like, in terms of bowling. But like, it's not like he's central to the plot. You know. No. And yet, like, so clearly drawn. And they're all somehow in the same world, which is wild. It is wild. The, the best part about the Turturro thing is that in my mind before watching it, I was like, John Turturro's in the whole movie, of course. Like, that's how large that character looms in the popular imagination right exactly and then i'm watching i'm like fuck he has two scenes like that's it yeah and exactly <laughs> that's like that's insane in one of the making ofs um the coen brothers were talking about how they had seen totoro in a play at the public 
where he played a, a Latinx character. And uh, they were like, we always wanted to put him in a movie playing a, a Latino guy. And uh, um, yeah, they, they I think that quote they said is that he just goes to the core of things. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's so true as an, as, as an actor and in that performance, you feel like Jesus Quintana is in the whole movie. And yeah, it's just a cup, quick, quick couple scenes with him and Liam. <laughs> I see you roll your way into the semis. Dios mío, man. Liam and me, we're gonna fuck you up. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Let me tell you something, Pandeo. You pull any of your crazy shit with us, you flash a piece out on the lanes. I'll take it away from you and stick it up your ass and pull the fucking trigger till it goes click. Jesus. You said it, man. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. Liam. <laughs> the funniest part, almost, is that <laughs> casting of Liam, that yeah. guy. Oh, my God. Like, the Simi Valley Republican bowler right. partnered with Jesus Quintana, the child molesting... <laughs> I mean, what's amazing is that Turturro said, you know, like as an actor, that he would, he'd be allowed to throw in filigrees and different character things like the socks, the rings, the mm. nail that he grew, the yeah. nail, all these things. And he's like, you know, usually you do these things and maybe one of them makes it in the movie. He's like, every single thing I did, they used. Huh. It's so, so insane. And wow. also, you know what scene slays me every time? When they're doing the, when uh, Walter Sobchak is telling the dude the story of, of Jesus's like prison stint for molesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking Santana. That creep can roll, man. Yeah, but he's a pervert, dude. Yeah. No. He's a sex offender with a record. He did six months of Chino for exposing himself to an eight-year-old. Huh. When he moved to Hollywood, he had to go door to door to tell everyone he was a petter ass. What's a petter ass, Walter? Shut the fuck up, Donnie. This is the brilliance of the Coen brothers is, and Turturro, they do the scene where he has to go door to door and tell his new neighbors that he's a sexual offender. Yeah. And they just have, like, right. there are two casting genius parts. The first one, right in the beginning of the movie, when the dude is in the Rouse, and he's going to the checkout counter to buy the half and half of the heavy cream. Yeah. And there's just the cashier is so perfectly yeah. cast, could be none more perfectly cast, has no lines, just the eyeshadow and the stultifying <laughs> bored look. And then the guy that opens the door when Jesus Quintana is there is just a guy who's a shit-kicking you know, he might, he might even have a bottle of Jack Daniels in his hand. I'm not even sure. And Chichiro just doesn't have a line, but he does this thing with his face that shows you the terror that he's about to get his ass kicked. And then that, like, that vulnerability, for lack of a better word, paired with the cock of the walk shit in the jumpsuits in the bowling alley is like, who the hell would ever do both of those things in the same performance? Yeah. God, he's right. so amazing. Now, I know he made this movie that's, I think it's out now, where it's like, a remake of a weird French movie, but it has the Jesus Quintana character. Have you seen that? One more strike, we lock you up for good. I've never seen anyone lick a ball before you throw the strike. That's my style. I haven't seen it yet, and um, but to be honest, I'm a little nervous to see it, just because I think it'll be a 
such a bummer if it's not uh, if it's not very good. I agree with you. You can't take the risk. Yeah, you really can't. You can't take the risk. I've always wanted them to make a follow up though years later called The Little Lebowski, where you know Maud and Jeffrey's little achiever gets. Well, how old would how old would The Little Lebowski be now? Well, he would have been born in ninety one, so he'd be coming up on his thirtieth uh, next year. Okay, Michael. I mean. Who better? Like this, this could really work. Can you put this? I'm probably I mean, a little too old, maybe. Yeah. But uh, oh no, you can play young if you shave yeah. the beard a little bit, cut the hair. If we can ever get haircuts again, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> someday. Or I can cut your hair. No, but seriously, you belong in the Cohen universe. Like you're the type of actor that could work within this so uh, clearly. Have you ever been up for anything with the Cohen brothers? That's the highest compliment. I have auditioned for a film or two of theirs, and. Um, I was in a short play of Ethan Cohen's uh, at the Atlantic Theater Company uh, probably nine years ago or so. And I was in it with Tim Blake Nelson, who's been in a couple of their films. And uh, yeah, so I've been in the in their orbit and I... Um, it's going to happen. It's going, going to happen. Yeah. It, when, when the time is right, you know, I will uh, gladly accept. <laughs> You know what's funny about the Western that just came out last year, Ballad of Buster Scruggs? Yeah. This is one of, like, one of the things I've been interested in is, you know how we're living in this time where sort of like everything that you're told can be completely fake, but everyone can accept it as true and everything that could be actually true, no one actually believes. Right. Yep. And in, a, in terms of movies that came out in the last couple of years, if you ask people like, what's the most popular movie that came out, you know, in 2018 or 2019... And you get these certain wave of answers. But we went through a phase in the podcast where we were doing a lot of the Oscar movies uh, at the time. And if you just look at podcast downloads, and like it's a way to tell you which movies people are interested in, because when we promote them, you promote them to people that like the movie, whether they know about this specific podcast or not. Right. And I really liked The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, even though it wasn't, it's not like a complete single narrative movie like I like them to do, but it gave me so much of what I love about this Cohen universe that I was all in. I loved it. And I was really surprised that even though the movie kind of felt like it came and went a little bit, it's still, it's like one of the top two or three most downloaded episodes that we've ever done. Wow. And people like really, really liked it, even though you really wouldn't know that in the popular culture, which I think is such a strange thing. And I've never been able to figure out why that is. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true of a lot of their films. I mean, I think they become cult favorites and their fans are super devoted. Um, but not all of their films become, you know, huge mainstream successes. Uh, it's almost bizarre that any of them do. Like yeah. when you Fargo, it's so like for that, it just gives you kind of hope about humanity that there's enough of us that could get that movie to make it so successful, let alone this movie. Like I was watching one of the featurettes with like the Lebowski fest. Yeah. And, you know, usually when there's like fan stuff around a movie, you're even though you might love the movie, you might probably be like, I don't really want to participate in that side of it. It's like, I don't really want to go to the lot at a dead and company show, maybe to like peruse the t-shirts a little bit, but like, that's not my scene, you know? Um, but. And like, there's a lot of like bros and dudes in the Lebowski Fest universe. It seems like a lot of them just like to maybe drink white Russians and smoke pot. But the fact that even that gets to be as big as it's become is kind of impressive. Uh, absolutely. Um, 
I, so I used to play in a band years ago and we played Lebowski Fest um, in New York. I want to say- Oh my God, I did not know uh, this, well, I, go on. Information better held off till after the wedding. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have secrets, man, you know? You, you gotta... which, which band, Less the Band? The, a band I was in called Less the Band. And uh, our drummer was from Louisville, Kentucky. And Lebowski Fest originally started in Kentucky, although it now happens in many cities across the nation. We played the New York Lebowski Fest, I think it was in 05, but I could be wrong about that, at the old Knitting Factory. There were a couple bands who played, and then they did a screening of Big Lebowski. Sure, there is some, there was some of that bro element of people drinking White Russians and stuff, but the, the movie theater was packed and every single person was saying every word along with the characters on screen. Like Amazing. everyone in the crowd knew every nuance, knew every inflection. It was unbelievable. It was like singing along with a crowd at your favorite concert, you know, to your favorite song. Like everyone knew everything. That's incredible. It was incredible. The the germ of this movie kind of coming back to life and the podcast came about because, uh, oh, it was when I did an episode with Peter O'Connor and he was talking about Philip Seymour Hoffman being like one of his acting idols. And so he had reminded me and I'd even forgotten that he had the genius cameo, more than a cameo, really, but the role that he that he plays in The Big Lebowski. Yeah. And that that's where it started because I revisited that scene. I was like, Oh my God, this is so fucking hilarious. Brant, first of all, Brant, Brant. just Brant. the name, just the name Brant, right? <laughs> Before you get anywhere else. Yeah. That's Brant. how specific and perfect is that? Ugh. This is a study. As you can see the various commendations, awards, citations, honorary degrees, mm. etc. Mm, very impressive. Oh, please feel free to inspect them. Oh, no, I'm not uh, really... Uh... Oh, please, please. That is the key to the city of Pasadena, which Mr. Lebowski received two years ago in recognition of his various civic... Uh... Oh, that's the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce Business Achiever Award, which is given... Well, not necessarily given every year. Hey, given only when there's a worthy is somebody... This, is this him with uh, Nancy? Yes, indeed. That is Mr. Lebowski with the First Lady, yes. Oh. Let's take in when Mrs. That's Reagan... uh, Lebowski on the left there. And then his line delivery in that scene where he does the thing like when he's talking about the achievers. Yeah. And he's like, these are the these are children who lack the necessary meat. The he, he bobbles like necessary means. Yeah. They're not literally his children. They're the little Lebowski urban achievers, inner city children of promise, but without the necessary means for a necessary means for a higher education. So Mr. Lebowski is committed to sending all of them to college. I was just dying. I was like, God, that's so good. I've always wondered if that was just sort of one of the... Sorry, just so everybody at home knows, Michael's just put sunglasses uh, on. Just, you know. Yeah, he's, he's warmed up now. He's getting into it. Yeah, we're almost, yeah, we're approaching the second set. He's getting ready to bring it. It's unbelievable. That's just like your opinion, man. Um, <laughs> oh. Yeah, Phil, I, I've always loved that moment. And as an actor, I wondered if it was just a moment where in a take he tripped over his words and it was a flub, but this is actually the highest compliment. He kept going mm -hmm. as any good actor would knowing that like there, you just stay in the scene, even if you 
quote unquote screw up mm-hmm. and that there might be something usable later in the take or whatever. And I, I don't know, maybe it was always in the script that he repeated himself or maybe it was a choice because Phil was a brilliant actor, but my gut is that he probably just stumbled over his words, but then just kept, he just stayed in it because he was in character and the Coens were just like, that's brilliant. Oh, so that. good. It's so good. a beautiful moment. Yeah, of course, Mr. Lebowski on the left. So he's a, uh, you know, a, a uh, handicapped uh, guy? Mr. Lebowski is disabled, yes. Uh, this picture was taken when Mrs. Reagan was first lady of the nation. Yes, yes, not of California. Chuck? Uh, in fact, he met privately with the president, though unfortunately there wasn't enough time for a photo opportunity. Oh, Nancy's pretty good. Oh, wonderful woman. We were uh, very happy to... These are... Uh... Oh, those are Mr. Lebowski's children, oh, different so mothers, to speak. Huh? No, they're not. Racially, he's pretty cool. <laughs> I think really his performance is extraordinary. It's one of my favorite performances of his, and and I agree. I, I have always, Phil, Phil was a, a guiding light for me. I mean, to be serious for a moment, I mean that a guy like him, and I say this only with love, but because also he and I are sort of physically similar in some ways, like that he would become a Hollywood leading man, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not even just a quote unquote character actor, but he would be, you know, a movie star was just so incredible. But then that he stayed grounded in the theater as well and was the artistic director of the labyrinth. I mean, and I had the pleasure of meeting him a few times and he was the most generous human being. And, um, yeah, I mean, what a loss. What an incredible man. Um, but this performance is really, even though it's just a small part, it ranks up there in one of my favorite Phil Hoffman performances of all time. Absolutely. We talked recently on the podcast about Gus Stavrokas on uh, Charlie Wilson's War. is another great Philip Seymour Hoffman performance that's, he was he was definitely the greatest actor of his generation to throw that ridiculous kind of label around. I mean, no one else in that era could do that stuff so convincingly different from itself. That's like a real actor that we don't really have many of those anymore, certainly in the movies, you know, without a doubt, movie acting has sort of become something else, but he's so young in this too, like, or seems young. What year was, what year was Boogie Nights? Was that in the nineties? Was that in the two thousands? I'd have to get, I feel like Boogie Nights came out shortly before this, but I could be wrong. Really? Lebowski's 1998. Yeah, Boogie Nights. Maybe Boogie Nights is like is two thousand. No, it's ninety seven. Yeah, which is crazy because he he looks younger in this movie than he does in Boogie Nights the year before. Yeah, <laughs> he's like a little boy. Yeah, um, I think it's like the haircut too and stuff. It and, is. Yeah, I mean, I wonder like when you when you look at a script, and I don't know, like how much character stuff is in like a coen brothers script other than the dialogue if they really lay all that out i know that like in many of these movies like they're writing for john goodman right right they're writing for steve buscemi they're writing for john turturro so you don't have to do a lot of that stuff but i wonder in the role of brant is it like was all that stuff like laid out in a in a succinct paragraph or is it just like was it just kind of that dialogue and then philip seymour hoffman being philip seymour hoffman was able to sort of come up with all the unspoken stuff about Grant, which is what is what really makes it. Like when Tara Reed says, Oh, your bunny. I'll suck your cock for a thousand dollars. Wonderful woman. We're all we're all very fond of her, very free spirited. Brand can't watch though. Or he has to pay a hundred. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's marvelous. If he wants to watch, it's a hundred bucks more. So there we know, like this has happened before with other visitors to the home. Like and his laugh when she says like, yes. is unbelievable. <laughs> That's marvelous. <laughs> oh my god. That is too too it's good. So good. I'm with you on Walter. I think like if you had to be a character in this movie, now Michael, you're dressed like the dude. So I don't think we have to worry or wonder who you're going to choose, right? We actually had this discussion. If you were one of the the main guys, whose personality most fits both of you? I think I want to be a dude, but I'm actually a Walter. Interesting. What about you, Emily? Of the three? Yes. A, a Buscemi? Oh, I'm not Buscemi. You could also be Maud Lebowski if you want to gender specific, but you know, we're not limit. We're not limited by Thank that here. That. I appreciate that. Thank you. Not Maud. Definitely not Maud. Uh, not Buscemi. Uh, I would say. I think I'm also John Goodman. Really? Well, I'm not the dude. Do you think I'm the dude? No, I don't think you're the dude. But I would think you're maybe a little bit Brant. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Time out. <laughs> of the oh, sorry, sorry. Of which there are three. Sorry. And even so, Brant. Oh, look, he takes his job very seriously. He wants to do a good job, right? Oh Emily's um, not an assistant. Emily's the big Lebowski. That's true. Can I be Sam Elliott? You could be Sam Elliott. Yes, you could be Sam Elliott. Only Sam Elliott is Sam Elliott. I'm definitely not John Turturro. No, who is? I mean, no one could be. I th- it's funny you guys both say Walter Subcheck because I was going to say, to me, I'm so obviously a Walter Subcheck. Like, yeah, you're a Walter. The blowhard, the know-it-all, who want- doesn't really know it all. Like all the character flaws of that character, I totally 100% relate to. That wasn't her toe, dude. <laughs> Whose toe was it, Walter? The fuck should I know? I do know that nothing about it indicates. Yeah, it the nail a- polish, Walter. Fine, dude. As if it's impossible to get some nail polish, apply it to someone else's toe. Someone else? Where the fuck are they going to get... You want a toe? I can get you a toe. Believe me. There are ways, dude. You don't want to know about it, believe me. Yeah, but Walter... Hell, I can get you a toe by 3 o'clock this afternoon with nail polish. These fucking amateurs. Walter. They sent us a toe. We're supposed to shit ourselves with fear. Jesus Christ. Walter. Now, the point is... They're going to kill her, Walter, and then they're going to kill me. Dude. That's... It's just the stress talking, man. But I was going to assume, Michael, that you would have that you would have chosen the dude. But I I take your point to wishing you were the dude, but realizing you were yeah, probably I'm, all a little more Walter. I'm I'm an achiever. I'm like I'm trying to be the dude. I I try to abide, but often my anger gets the better of me, and you know it. Uh, I, I explode into a Walter uh, frenzy. Now, so far we have what appears to me to be a series of victimless crimes. What about the toe? Forget about the fucking toe! Excuse me, sir. Could you please keep your voices down? This is a family restaurant. Oh, please, dear. For your information, the Supreme Court has roundly rejected Walter, prior restraint. This is not a First Amendment thing, sir, man. If you don't calm down, I'm gonna have to ask you to leave. Lady, I got buddies who died face down in the muck so that you and I could enjoy this family restaurant. All right, I'm out of here. Hey, dude, don't go away, man. Come on, this affects all of us, man. Our basic freedoms. I'm staying. 
finishing my coffee. Is it weird when I was watching the making of features? I always find it kind of jarring to watch when another camera is filming scenes that we know mm-hmm. from like the side while they're doing them. Like in, there's some bowling alley scenes and it's kind of like, you can kind of tell it's like takes that made it into the movie, but we're seeing it sort of like on a VHS from the side. Right. It <laughs> freaks me out. It makes me really uncomfortable. I don't know why. Yeah. Well, it's weird. It's like you're, it's like, um, it's almost like if you saw footage of your own life, it's not from the perspective that you're used to. It's not from your point of view. You're seeing it from this side angle and it, it looks a little less good too, you know? Yes. It's like, oh, that scene doesn't look as cool on that behind the scenes footage because it's not, doesn't have the soundtrack underneath it and it's not mixed and mastered. And yeah. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's like the quality of the image has so much to do with like what we experience when we're watching a movie. And these guys are so insanely visual and the frame is so composed that yes, when you see the actors just in like a loose VHS thing on the side, yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, Roger Deakins, the DP, like this this film is so, um, I think a big mistake that people make is dismissing it as like a stoner comedy or like a bro movie or, you know, even the cult classic thing is, um, it, it, it undermines um, the filmmaking. And whether or not you care about the plot, just the visual work that's going on, uh, the art direction, the cinematography, it's stunning. I mean, all of those dance sequences and dream sequences are so trippy and so cool. And um, the it's just beautifully shot. And it's an homage to so many awesome things in Hollywood, like all their movies are, are both this like synthesis of and celebration of yet completely original demonstration of genres and styles. And they're able to just deploy that and do that and when you hear them talk like that's the thing i love the most about them yeah is if you had an expectation of what filmmakers who did things like these movies would talk and sound like it's not what you get in a great way from the both of them like i get film nerd 101 (laughs) first totally The Big Lebowski started really with us thinking about a friend of ours in Los Angeles who the character that Jeff Bridges plays is sort of loosely based on. This is a guy who we've known for about 15 years who actually does call himself the dude. And it was sort of uh, imagining him in uh, sort of the context of a Chandler kind of a story that got us started on the script. It just seemed interesting to us to thrust that character into the most confusing situation possible. The person, it would seem, on the face of it, least equipped to uh, to deal with it. That's sort of the conceit of the movie. And the deadpan, it, it obviously sort of like is a mask for this incredible well of information and knowledge, which isn't used to like keep people at arm's length in the movies. It's used to like somehow bring us into this tent that can go to all the crazy places that all their movies have gone over the years. Yeah. And there, there's nobody like them. Like I, I just was watching this the second time the other night. And I was thinking like, man, we're so lucky to live in this time where these people are making these movies at the top of their game, because that's, 
I can't imagine anyone's going to grow up the way they grew up anymore to have that frame of reference. Yeah. It's so true. You know? Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Jeff freaking Bridges. Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Wait, wait, let me let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Uh, Are you employed, sir? Employed? <laughs> you don't go out looking for a job dressed like that, do you? On a weekday? Is this a... What day is this? Well, I do work, sir. So if you don't mind... Well, I do mind. Uh, the dude minds. This will not stand, you know? This aggression will not stand, man. How did he, A, not get nominated for an Academy Award for this performance? How did that happen, number one? Right? How, did that e how is that even possible that that happens? And two, I'm going to make a hot take. It's one of the greatest American movie performances, full stop, period by a man in a movie. I said to Michael, I was like, he he was nominated, right? And he was like, no. And I, I was stunned. I mean, it's iconic. It's unbelievable what he does. He, he makes it so complete and so real that you don't see the actor at all. Yeah. And to the point that we've all come to think of Jeff Bridges, the person now, as the dude. And... But I don't think before this movie that his personality was like that. I, I don't know him, but I, I I don't know that it was that similar to the dude. I feel like he's taken on more dude characteristics in his real life. What he does physically, the way he uses his body. Like when he gets in the chair in the uh, the big Lebowski's office and he just kind of like slings a leg over it. like the way, the way he sits everywhere, the way he is at Jackie Treehorn's house, and oh. he's just like leaning on that weird couch, and his stomach is showing, and the way he sips his white Russian always, and it gets in his beard, the way he smokes that roach with the roach clip and the yeah. bed with Maude, it's like, he's so good. He's so good. You know, uh, Michael, this is not the first time Michael has dressed as the dude. Uh, Michael, this is at least probably the third time you've dressed as the dude. Today? <laughs> uh great question well played there's a whole religion there is a religion really? a religion called dudism and people take it actually really seriously it's like yeah yes. it's, like, it's sort of a distilled version of taoism without some of the mysticism it's like uh you know take it easy go with the flow you know no attachment to money yeah yeah jeff bridges has a thing where he's like a friend of his in la he was like a very involved, you know, Buddhist teacher was like, you know, that, yeah, like the dude is all Buddhism. Like this, this, he's like a spiritual guru and mentor to many people because he embodies a lot of the tenets that we try to live by. He's like, what? Oh, I had no idea. Did anybody get nominated from the film? I don't not think so. Not acting wise, I don't remember any technical. I want to see what else got nominated that year, what performances. It's probably like Shakespeare in Love or something. <laughs> it's always yes it's always either shakespeare and love or like romeo and juliet with like you know you're like wait what how did or the english patient or the english patient yes <clears throat> so the male so let's see so acting nominees oh my god it is shakespeare and love you're right <laughs> <laughs> best actor roberto benini ian mckellen 
Nick Nolte for Affliction, Edward Norton for American History X, and your boy Tom Hanks in Saving Private Ryan, winner. Roberto Benini. And he like ran up and down the aisle. Oh, that's right. I remember that. It really wasn't received super well. It didn't do well at the box office. It didn't get great reviews. Yeah. It is one of those things that like, I don't know, you know, in, in American society and like, especially, you know, like with Hollywood trying to make money on things like maybe this isn't always a compliment, but it's a, it's a movie that gets better with age and it, and it requires almost multiple viewing. Again, to go back to music, like I'm always drawn to the bands that like, you got to spend, you got to do the homework. You, yeah. you got to like, you got to dig deep to kind of get it. And not that it's about all about inside jokes, but that, you know, you got to, the more time you spend with it, the more familiar you are with it, the, the more you get out of it. And I'm clearly the novice in this conversation, but I do think Fargo, there's such an, there are a series of events that happen in Fargo, right? That like make it the kind of movie that I think the Academy gravitates towards and this is just like a quieter portrait that isn't there's not like I think your note for me at the beginning Michael was right like don't get caught up in like the whodunit just enjoy the character study right but I just don't think that that is a slower burn well and it's not as serious like it's uh, it's irreverent like Fargo takes all of the bad things that happen seriously and like right. even at the end of Lebowski when the bartender says to the dude you know sorry about Donnie and, and the dude's kind of like oh yeah well you know sometimes you eat the bar and sometimes uh well hey man how do you do dude I wonder if I see you again Mr. Simwise how's oh, things yeah. been going Strikes and gutters, ups and downs. Okay, I got you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. You know, sometimes you eat the bar. Sometimes he, like, Donnie's death, there's that beautiful hug between Walter and the dude, but Donnie's death doesn't really get the kind of, like, weight and gravitas that it should, really, for the third biggest character. And, like, right. you know, it's it's not a serious movie. Hmm. Right. So people didn't take it seriously. but. Just because the plot isn't serious right. doesn't mean that like the craftsmanship wasn't. Hundred you percent, know? and I love the detail where they talk about writing that part for Steve Buscemi, and and basically saying like you know we had just done Fargo and like he's so talky in that movie and it, they mm -hmm. were kind of just like you could tell with so many things they just kind of get excited about the idea of doing something completely different even though they have no idea why they're doing it sometimes. Oh, this wow. goes back to the Sam Elliott thing too because they say the same thing. Sam Elliott would actually ask us for Duran, like, what am I doing in this movie? And yeah, Sam would say, I don't know what I'm doing here, boys. <laughs> Happy to be here, don't get me wrong, but... We didn't yeah. have anything to tell Sam, we didn't know either. <laughs> but, you know, didn't hurt his performance any. <laughs> what am I doing in this movie? Right. And, they, and both Joel and Ethan were like, you know, to be honest with you, we Love don't really that. know. But let's just see where it goes, right? Yeah, we, and then we like, we like your voice. We like, like we voice. love your voice, and like, yeah. and it does. It lends like Sam Elliott's present lends this quasi-religious part of it because to me, I read him as Jesus for some reason, yeah. like real Jesus, not Jesus Quintana. I think of him as like a spirit or an angel nice. who is with the dude, a guardian angel who likes his style, likes a sarsaparilla and all that stuff, but. 
But with Buscemi, I think they just kind of got off on the idea of like, let's do a part for Steve that like doesn't really use Steve the way everybody, including us, tends to use him as this like attention grabbing kind of eccentric looking and sounding character. Right. And just that counterintuitive genius makes it such one of like my favorite Steve Buscemi performances because it's so atypical for him. That's so interesting that you frame it that way. And I, I should watch it again because I said to Michael, I was like, why aren't they using Buscemi? <laughs> Like, what is, like, what the hell? Like, you know, because I'm so used to the thing, right? I'm so used to Buscemi that I was like, he's so back-footed. Like, what the hell's going on? It's like Lenin said, you look for the person who will benefit and, uh, uh, you know. Uh, I am the walrus. You know, you'll, uh, uh, well, you know what I'm trying to say. I am the walrus. That's uh, fucking bitch. Oh, yeah. I am the walrus. That's ex Shut the fuck up, Donnie. V.I. Lenin. Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. Right. And it's like, that would be like why I would be a terrible film director because if I was on the set and I, and like Turturro did the Jesus Quintana stuff. Jesus. You said it, man. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. I'd be like, okay, hold it, let's hold up things for a minute because obviously we have to like rewrite the whole movie so that he can be in the entire rest of the film. Right. Have the discipline to leave it there. Yeah, that's true. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't yeah. have that. Well, and like that someone who was a little more sentimental or cheesy, you would you would beef up Donnie's presence because if there is a huge event of the film, if there's an emotional event, it's the death of Donnie. It's this buddy movie at the end of the day. It's about these three best friends. Clearly it's more focused on the dude and Walter, but like Donnie dies. And you, you know, you could hear the bad meetings where the execs are just like well, we got to care about Donnie more. If like the end of the movie is him dying and they're spreading his ashes over the ocean, you know, we, we have to have more of an emotional investment in Donnie. And it's like, no, it's, it's the perfect, he's such a wholesome character. He's such an innocent character. I also love, they're so good at being so specific with even the smallest characters are so fleshed out. And not that Donnie's a small character, but the fact that he has this name, Theodore Donnie Karavatsos, like <laughs> that you find out, like his first name wasn't even Donnie's, Theodore Donald Karavatsos. And like, you know what? I think I was just looking at the Academy Awards. I got, I finally got the right ones for Fargo here. You know, Fargo was such a thing and did win so many Academy Awards that I think the very next year for a move for this movie to come out is sort of like you guys had your, you had your, you had your moment. We're going to be looking elsewhere for awards yep. for the next couple of years. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Probably had something to do with it. Yeah, that's probably right. Okay, so you mentioned Jackie Treehorn, the great Ben Gazzara. Hello, dude. Thanks for coming. I'm Jackie Treehorn. It's quite a pad you got here, man. Completely unspoiled. What's your drink, dude? White Russian, thanks. White Russian. How's the smut business, Jackie? I wouldn't know, dude. I deal in publishing, entertainment, political advocacy. Oh, which one's log jamming? Yes, regrettably, it's true. Standards have fallen in adult entertainment. That house is such an iconic piece of LA architecture. It's been in so many TV shows and movies. And you're right that the dude in that scene, even before he's drugged, is so loose and loose, like in a way that he hasn't been in the movie before. And there's no kind of like reason or ex it's almost like they've been friends for 20 years 
you know? Like, it's such a weird tone that completely works. It completely works. And you see him, like, the dude who is this guy who sort of seems to always kind of be in his element and not phased by other people. You have to wonder a little bit, like, he shows up at this beach party and there's, like, this naked woman being thrown up on this blanket and there's all these people party. It's a bohemian scene. It's the first time where maybe... Jeffrey Lebowski isn't the like biggest hippie stoner in the room. And it's almost like he's trying to fit in with the Mm -hmm. pornographer at his Malibu beat house, you know? And it's like, (laughs) he's doing the thing of like, he's maybe just a little bit. His head is turned a little bit. He's kind of like, I could dig this scene. I could be a part of this. Yeah. How's business, Jackie? Like your place here, man. (laughs) Yeah. The belly is such an amazing thing. Like just that lean back to reveal. Yes. Is just so fucking good. And you're so right that like, if anything, you know, Jeff Bridges is like second generation Hollywood royalty to the manor born. He has nothing in common with this character, maybe except sort of growing up at a similar time frame. Right. Right. And the specificity of the writing, like when he's in bed with Maud and he's like, I, um, I was uh, one of the authors of the poor Huron statement. Uh, the original Port Huron statement. Uh-huh. Uh, not the, the compromised second draft. Not the compromised second draft. <laughs> like that line I wrote down and, and underscored. It's just, the it's writing, right? It's writing, 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 writing. And then these guys, unlike anybody else, do all of that. Like to write like that and then be able to visually have such a specific thing that still can call back to all the Hollywood stuff that they're calling back to right i can't think of anybody else who can do that and working with collaborators over a long period of time and the production design and deacons and the actors i mean i still remember john goodman in raising arizona which is like that's the first movie that blew my mind by the coen brothers all right hey seats it's a stick up everybody freeze everybody down on the ground Well, which is it, young feller? You want I should freeze or get down on the ground? I mean to say, if I freeze, I can't rightly drop. And if I drop, I'm going to be in motion. You see? Shut up! Okay, then. Everybody down on the ground! Y'all can just forget that part about freezing now. Better still get down there. Yeah, y- y'all hear that, don't you? And oh. I still think a lot about how that opens with the line with them with him in prison with the cell mate above him and they're telling stories and when there was no meat we ate fowl and there was no fowl we ate crawdad and when there was no crawdad to be found we ate sand you ate what we ate sand you ate sand that's right and the guy is doing this like a, another amazing cohen sort of join this personality in mid take of a fully blown character who's just a throwaway character you're never going to see again who's like a cellmate like just that that's how the movie starts and, and yeah. then it like has that incredible title sequence and the song and the the raising arizona logo it's like i was so all in as a teenager in that space of just like what is this you know and it's just never really disappointed since then it's crazy and then like the, yeah. Jack, the jackie treehorn stuff is just another example of that it's like 
it's akin to kind of like the great Burt Reynolds thing in Boogie Nights, you definitely, know? Definitely, yeah. But it's also its own thing that only Gazara brings that gravitas to it and that danger, a little menace, you know? Yeah. And that suit that he's got on, <laughs> that like white suit with the shirt untucked, and he's just like Jackie Treehorn, log jamming. Hmm? Oh, I know that guy. Yeah, he's a nihilist. Hello, my dispatcher says there's something wrong with Dinah Carver. Yeah, come on in. I'm not really sure exactly what's really wrong with the cable. That's why they sent me. I am an expert. The TV's in here. You recognize uh, her, of course. Oh, that's my friend Sherry. She just came over to use a shower. The story is ludicrous. My name is college for an expert. You must be here to fix the cable. Lord, you can imagine where it goes from here. He fixes the cable. Watch. <laughs> Michael did a like line specific Instagram comment when I posted a Jackie Trehorn photo yeah. of the brilliant Peter Stormare horrible dialogue in the fake porn movie. I, I am an expert. <laughs> <laughs> he fixes the cable, man. Oh um, my god. I Yes, to all of that, what you were saying about raising Arizona. And I feel like what's so cool, maybe I'm maybe being a little hyperbolic here, but what their movies are, are like just so unabashedly American, mm. but also like commenting on America in this way. Mm. You know, the iconography of a pornographer's house or any of these locations or the music they choose. It's so, and yes, and it's referential to Hollywood and classic Hollywood and they're always sort of riffing on or doing you know a tribute to other films and other filmmakers mm -hmm. but like this whole dude thing you know we were talking about Sam Elliott's character and this you know this sort of almost like omniscient narrator guy he's called the stranger and um he's this cowboy and you know going west go west young man was always like the American mm -hmm. thing American expansion across the the country until you can't go any further and you hit the ocean and california being the gold rush and mm -hmm. and hollywood and the place where it's the ultimate physical manifestation of the american dream and um the movie is such a los angeles movie and such an angelino movie mm -hmm. and it's about you know the failures of the american dream here's this guy who is just like fuck it man let's go bowling, you know, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna achieve, man, like, you know, uh, you know, I'm someone that the square community is gonna reject a deadbeat like me. And uh, somehow for the dude, everything kind of works out, though. Mm -hmm. He's Zen. And there's that thing where um, he's talking to the stranger and the stranger says, sometimes the bar eats, sometimes you eat the bear and sometimes he eats you. And Lebowski says, like, is that an Eastern thing? And the stranger says far from it far from it <laughs> i love also that they don't just make it easy for you and just have him say bear right yeah he, he exactly. sticks with bar. bar sometimes the bar, bar. <laughs> you know emily this scene reminds me of you in a way or what michael was just talking about like because you you are a very well you both are you're both very politically involved you care a great deal uh, you're not as cynical and jaded as I am at 51 years of age because you guys are a generation or two younger than me. So you still, you still have some hope. You you still have some hope. Yes, <laughs> but I think Michael is right. Like the dude 
you know, did at one point care and was involved in the movement. Right. And this shot of him now, sort of 20, 25 years removed from that, is really kind of shot through with that, like, foiled or dashed upon the rocks kind of futility of his efforts, I guess, yeah. however serious they may have been. And they sound like they were pretty serious at the time in the 60s. Like, you know, he was involved. He was a member of the Seattle Seven for crying out loud. Yeah. Right? You know, so, yeah, it is this, this, this topic of America, of Americana. And even when they did, you know, the Western one just recently, like that too was so about what you're talking about, about like the American West and both the way we the we and they sentimentalize it, romanticize it, and yet how that is such a narrow picture of American history and, right. and glosses over so much horrific stuff that is bubbling up underneath just a cowboy on a horse with a hat is like, yeah, there's that, but there's also this other genocide aspect going on as well. And somehow they're able to kind of pay homage to those things and still make those darker points. And what you were saying before, it's like, I've heard a lot in doing the podcast where a lot of people say like, oh, directing is like a young person's medium and caring that much about all these specific details over the course of making a piece of filmed entertainment has got to be so exhausting, right? To like, to want to get all those details right in the character, the clothing, the cinematography, the editing, like imagine being able to do that, right? But also like you probably burn out that most people don't get it or care no matter how big your movie is anymore. Mm. Like when we did Seven, and I love Fincher. Like, I'm not a huge Seven fan, but like yeah. when I was like going down the wormhole of Seven and looking at how much attention was paid to so many things in that movie, it's it's mind boggling, right? And even for him, it's kind of like it gets boiled down to a head in the box movie. Yeah. Nobody's paying attention to the seven layers of sound design he has going on mm. in every scene that is all constructed with a point you know what i mean and yeah so these guys like how they get to do this is is pure talent i guess you know it's like you're talking about philip seymour hoffman it's like he doesn't matter what he looked like he's so fucking talented that talent will find talent will out yeah I mean, they're so talented. I mean, it, it, it is such a credit to them that I feel like people watch their movies and they do pay attention to that detail. They, these rabid fans. Who, mm -hmm. And, but it's, um, this may be overly simplistic, but if I, I think about like just two brothers working together and I have a younger mm -hmm. brother and like, just, I remember that we would just like make up stupid stuff as kids and you take it so seriously. And if I imagine like my brother and I having just made stuff for the past 40 years like I think there's a kind of um when you have someone you're that close with and you share like essentially a brain with there's a kind of um uh like intimacy and uh, specificity I keep saying but it's just like baked into it mm -hmm. that, um, mm -hmm. they really have, have created their own world and while all the films are different, they all fit into a similar framework and, and, 
and ethos. Mm-hmm. I guess I haven't mm-hmm. really, yeah. I mean, the fact that they're brothers, like that acts, that adds such a degree of difficulty. Like, yes, of course they come from the same place and they have a, you know, they've known each other since they were born, but like also to work with family creatively, <laughs> like and yeah. figure out like who's leading, who's following. And, you know, I mean, that's that I, I hadn't really ever thought about how that just, that makes it even more of a feat in some ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how you can hear the actors talk too about, you know, everyone always thinks like, oh, Joel, you know, does the directing and Ethan is kind of like more, but all the actors on this are like, you know, that's sort of like the shorthand, but, but there are like plenty of times like Ethan will come up and have this one thing to say just before a take of the scene that, that is so spot on and so right. I think one of them tells a story, I think it's Jeff uh, Jeff uh, Bridges about, he's like, the only time I ever saw them have even remotely a difference of opinion was in the dream sequence when he's going through the um, the Corrine's legs in the bowling alley. Yeah. And I think Joel was like, your, the expression on your face should be serious. And Ethan was like, should it though? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, literally, that's the only time I saw them. Like, he's like, that's not even a difference of opinion. He's like, right. And, you know, they ended up doing it both ways. Yeah, like, yeah, Nobody yeah. won, but it's like. Right. But I think Ethan is more involved as Roderick James in the edit, right? With his wife. He and his wife right. are the editors of the films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he gets to probably have his way at the end of the day anyway. The the well, day. <laughs> what you were saying, uh, to just circle back for a second about the about the West, like, I delight in Fargo because it's from, it's from Minnesota. And I just like nod my head the entire time. And when I went to drama school, people were like, is that really what it's like? And I'm like, absolutely. And um, when I saw a simple man, that's what we've decided it's called. Right. So I was at serious. Okay. Whatever the hell. So I'm sitting at the Lincoln center uh, cinema and in front of me is this guy and he keeps laughing. He's laughing at all the right parts. And I'm like, I think that's Al Franken. And they grew up in the same neighborhood in Minnesota called Highland Park uh, as the Coen brothers. And so he gets up at the end of the film and it is Al. And, you know, we talk, I tell him I'm from Minnesota that I voted for him, blah, blah, blah. And um, sort of shot the shit about specifically how much they nailed that neighborhood in Minnesota. Right. And he was, that's Mm -hmm. what he was responding to. But I think Mm -hmm. what's wild is like the same could be said about this film in LA. Like, like they're, they're Mm -hmm. so it's one thing to know where you're from and to know how mm-hmm. to capture that. It's another thing to be able to be like, let's do LA now and have that same level of specificity. I mean, it's wild. Oh my God. hundred percent. You're so right. I remember almost one of my favorite scenes in Fargo is just the throwaway one where the guy in the crazy boots and the snow thing is like shoveling snow. Okay. Mr. Mora. Yeah. Officer Olson. Yeah. Right. Oh, well, so I'm tending bar down there at Eklund and Swedlund's last Tuesday, and this little guy's drinking, and he says, so where can a guy find some action? I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, what kind of action? And he says, woman action. What do I look like? And I says, well, what do I look like? I don't arrange that kind of thing. And he says, but I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, yeah, but this ain't that kind of place. Uh-huh. He says, oh, so I get it. So you think I'm some kind of jerk for asking, only you don't use the word jerk. I understand. Then he calls me a jerk, says last guy thought he's a jerk is dead now. So I don't say nothing. He says, what do you think about that? And I says, well, that don't sound like too good a deal for him then. <laughs> you got that right. Yeah. He says, yeah, that guy's dead, and I don't mean of old age. And then he says, geez, I'm going crazy out there at the lake. 
White Bear Lake? Yeah, well, at Eklund and Swedland, that's closer to Moose Lake, so I made that assumption. Oh, sure. Anyway, he's drinking at the bar, so I don't think a whole great deal of it, but then Mrs. Mora, she heard about the homicides down here and thought I should call it in, so I called it in. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That is such a Minnesota-specific thing. So specific, yeah. But but in that one little thing, I don't even know who that guy is. He can't be an actor. Maybe he is. Right? I, think he, I think he's actually a Minnesotan actor. Or like oh, really? He ran like a theater in Minneapolis. Yeah. If oh, I'm, my God. That scene is so fucking amazing. Yeah. Can we talk about the music in this movie? Oh, my God. It? Please. Insane. It's insane. And for me, it's it's such a it's such an important element. And uh, T-Bone Burnett, obviously, I mean, even call him a music supervisor on this or anything is wrong. I mean, like, it's it's such a... So from like the Towns Van Zant version of Dead Flowers at the end. Take me down, little Susie, take me down. I know you think you're the queen of the underground. Send me dead flowers every morning. Send me dead flowers by the maid. Send me dead flowers to my wedding. And I won't forget to put roses on your grave. Totally. To, to the, the man and me, as you were talking about earlier, to like we were texting earlier this week about the fact that Kenny Rogers did, uh, I just stopped in to see what my condition, my condition is in. That tune is amazing. What a song. I tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high. I told my mind on a jagged sky. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. My mind was blown. I was like, wait, yeah. what is this song that I've heard? I had no idea that was Kenny Rogers in like 1967 hippie drugged out Kenny Rogers. What? Right. That was long before the chicken restaurants, my friend. <laughs> oh my God. What a song. What a song. But even like uh, Oyo Como Va and mm. that version of Hotel California that's the Gypsy King. Gypsy King. <laughs> um, to like the musicians who are in it. So Jimmy Dale Gilmore. Right. The great Smokey. country singer, Smokey. I'm sorry, Smokey. You were over the line. That's a foul. Bullshit. Market eight, dude. Oh, uh, excuse me. Market zero. Next frame. Bullshit, Walter. Market eight, dude. Smokey, this is not nom. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey. <laughs> well, I wasn't over. <laughs> I'm going to be filing a complaint with the league office. Market, market eight, dude. <laughs> Um, to you know the the nihilist girlfriend who cuts off her toe. Yeah, Amy Mann. Amy Mann. I mean, it's unbelievable. To flee, flee, flee. I love, and I get it, but I love the difference. Such a great little character thing of the dude's love of credence, <laughs> but hatred of the eagle. Jesus, man, could you change the channel? Fuck you, man. If you don't like my fucking music, get your own fucking cab. I had a really I rough... I flew up to the side and kick your ass out. 
Man, come on. I had a rough night and I hate the fucking Eagles, man. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously very different bands and a lot of people hate the Eagles, but like his unabashed love of Creedence and his hatred of the Eagles, it's, you know, it's such a great little character thing. Um, it, that's also true to kind of his 60s roots, right? Because a real right. radical like him would never love a corporatist rock conglomeration right. like the right. Eagles. Yeah. And the cab driver, you know, the black cab driver, also a great detail, who loves the Eagles so much that he's willing to pull over the cab on the side of a freeway and kick <laughs> the dude out. It's so good. Oh, my God. The music, like, is a character. It's like when that Gypsy King's version like you have jesus quintana so the way the gypsy king songs start in that you don't know right away that it's a cover of hotel california Kind of starts in a way that feels appropriate with the character but then when they start singing and you're like wait a minute what like it's yeah. so such a genius weird choice oh, it's so good <laughs> even that um i actually don't even know whose version it is but the uh drifting along through the tumbling tumbleweeds uh oh yeah that's um oh that is just so that's sons of the pioneers sons of the pioneers earliest western singing groups since 1933 Wow. Yeah, like starting this movie with tumbling tumbleweeds? Like, how does that end up working in an L.A. noir? In an L.A. noir. But, but it, it does. does. It does. Yeah, it's so true. It's so funny. Like, that's the dude's Los Angeles. Like, uh, right. Los Angeles. Los uh, Angeles. You know, it's like a movie about L.A. and there's never, like, a scene where people are stuck in traffic. You know, it's like, the dude avoids traffic. It's like real L.A. in the way that like Jackie Brown is a real L.A., not an L.A. that tourists go to or that the beautiful people inhabit. It's an L.A. of the single story like storefronts and bars from the 70s and 60s that are still in existence and the diners and the restaurants and the bail bonds shops. And like when you drive through normal L.A. as opposed to like what we think of L.A., right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Can we talk about the landlord? Marty. Oh, my God. Dude. Hey, Marty. Dude, I, I, I finally got, I got the, uh, the venue I wanted. To, I'm performing my dance quintet, you know, my cycle at Crane Jackson's Fountain Street Theater on Tuesday night. And uh, I'd love it if you came and gave me notes. I'll be there, man. <laughs> uh, dude, uh, Tomorrow's already the 10th. Far out. Oh, oh, all right, okay. Just, uh, just slip the rent under my door. That. Incredible stuff. Okay, who is that actor? Yeah, I, I don't know his name. He's in a ton of things, but, um, 
Oh my God. That... He's in like everything, but I don't know his name. I mean, absurd. He's so, damp absurd. So, and like oh. the shoes on his, the shoes piled up on his stoop for no discernible reason and his fear of the dude even yeah. though he's the landlord. Oh, I loved the invite to the dance. It was fabulous. Uh, yeah. But then at the very end, asking for rent, which felt like yeah. he was ashamed slash scared to do. Jack Keller. Jack Keller. As Jack Marty. Keller. So good. So good. So good. Marty. That has the feeling where they were like, Jack, you know, this is who you are and you're going to do a dance performance, but we leave it up to you to actually plot the dance performance. Like we don't yeah. have any expectation. Oh, good call. Who choreographed <laughs> the dance cycle? That's amazing. That guy is incredible. All right. What else on the movie before we segue? I want to ask, I would like Michael to indulge me with some ephemera about his own career. Yeah. Uh, anything else on the movie before we move on? Larry Sellers. Larry oh. Sellers and his homework. That the uh, pilar, <laughs> the iron lung, the iron lug. Is this your homework, Larry? Is this your homework, Larry? Look, man, do it... please. Is this your homework, Larry? Just ask him about the car, man. Is this yours, Larry? Is this your homework, Larry? Is that your car out front? Is this your homework, Larry? We know it's his fucking homework. Where's the fucking money, you little brat? Look, Larry. Have you ever heard of Vietnam? Oh, You're entering a world Walter. of pain. Uh, Walter's heartfelt pay-on to the TV series, especially the, especially the early episodes. <laughs> Who the fuck is Arthur Digby Sellers? The, have you ever heard of a little show called Branded, dude? Yeah, yes, I All but one man died there at Bear yeah, I know the fucking show, Walter, so what? Fucking Arthur Digby Sellers wrote 156 episodes, dude. Huh. Bulk of the series. Oh. Bulk of the series. Bulk of the series. Oh, my God. But again, like another Western uh, image metaphor, branded, like Hollywood Western. I, I didn't even, I, I every time I watched it, I was like, in my mind, I was like, oh, uh, Walter Sobchak is like going to turn out to be like a valor thief. He's going to be one of those guys who pretends to be a Vietnam veteran. That to me feels so appropriate and true for the character. But I guess it turns out he actually supposedly legitimately was a Vietnam veteran. So, yeah. Um, and I didn't pick up that he owned a security service either until the second viewing where when the dude picks him up to go on the amazing foiled delivery of the money, he's standing okay. in front of Sobchak security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yep. I don't want to end our discussion on a critical note. Oh, I love critical notes about adored classics. Now you're speaking my language. And I'm very apprehensive because there are uh, one of my like overall feelings, at least about the Coen Brothers movies that I've seen, is that there is a lack of women in the movie. Mm -hmm. And I love Franny McDormand's performance in Fargo so much. And I'm just fucking thrilled that she won the Oscar for it. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder if more women were in the films that like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I just like, I, I actually think they can write women quite well. Um, yeah. So it's not a, it's not a critique on the writing. I don't love Julianne Moore's performance. You don't, you know, what's funny. I actually, I'm not usually a fan and I like this performance from her, but I did make a note too of exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It's a bummer. And saying like, if, if not for Fargo, you would really be able to kind of hit them with that cudgel a lot more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's sort of the saving grace, right? Is that it's this incredible yeah. character in Fargo. But um, yeah, I just, I think 
a lot of what we talked about is how you've got these hugely vibrant characters in all of these different directions. And for me, her borders aren't as clear. Like I don't, I don't find mm-hmm. her to be as clearly drawn and there's just like little details. Like I don't love the dialect work. I know it's supposed to be like funny or whatever, but I'm like, what right. is this? Um, yeah. And I like her as an actress, but I just, for me, I wanted, I wanted it to be more delicious of a performance mm-hmm. and it, it didn't really happen for me. I know what you mean. It's pitched a little bit. It's, it's more of the theatricality yeah. that Michael was talking about without some of the groundedness of some of the other. Exactly. There's not a, there's not the level of specificity. It's not ground. It's not like rooted in as much mm-hmm. authenticity, I guess, for me as, as the others. I'm just, I wasn't. It's an accent job. Kind of. Yeah. Jeffrey. Yeah. You know. But Michael, you um, like her in it, right? Don't, don't you, Michael? He's a good man and thorough. Yeah, I mean, it is It is maybe a little less grounded. It's it's totally a send-up of a kind of mm-hmm. a society woman, a rich woman who's trafficking in the art world and uh, has a fit, like a put-on erudite sort of transatlantic uh, half-British, half-American accent. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't fault Julianne Moore as much as maybe just she didn't have as much to work with. And it's one of those things, too, where I don't know exactly how they work, but sometimes as an actor, you can show up and you, you know, she's a busy person. It may have been that like, she had two days that fit into her schedule and she showed up and there was no time for rehearsal. They just kind of did it, you know, and she took a swing at a big choice and it works for some people and it doesn't work for others. I, I love it. Right, but, but let me explain something about the rug. Do you like sex, Mr. Lebowski? Sex, the physical act of love. Coitus. Do you like it? I was talking about my rug. You're not interested in sex? You mean coitus? I like it too. It's a male myth about feminists that we hate sex. It can be a natural, zesty enterprise. Yeah, I think it it could go back to also what you were talking about, Michael, with like two brothers in a room, two male brothers in a room. Like, I mean, a lot of their characters, it's about male stupidity and blundering and like delusion of self which is a very let's say that's like a male characteristic really like we we kind of own that space yeah you do as 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 part of the species so you've cornered the market Mm -hmm. well you got holly you know holly hunter in raising arizona is pretty great and iconic so good so good but i know what you mean it's definitely a thing it's definitely enough of it there to say it's kind of a thing for sure yeah for sure I'm glad you brought that up. I actually wrote that down, Emily. I had that. Nice. I knew you were going to go there. So Thanks. Thanks for knowing me. I just want to wrap up with a couple of funny tidbits here because I like to probe through people's IMDb pages. And since we have an actual actor here, I can bring some of the things from your IMDb page, Michael, that caught my eye. The very first thing, of course, is that your first performance was as Gandalf when you were 13 years old. <laughs> the true story. That is a true story. It was at Rocky River Junior High School. I grew up in Rocky River, Ohio, the suburbs of Cleveland. I, I was, you know, like most schools, sports were the thing. So, like, I tried being on the basketball team in seventh and eighth grade, and I was terrible and just rode deep bench. I just played deep bench. <laughs> um, I remember, you know, I, I went to see a movie with a friend of mine, my friend Dan Shaveda. And I think we went and saw Rocky three or Rocky four. Mm-hmm. 
and we're outside the movie theater waiting for my mom to come pick us up. And I remember my friend Dan Chavita said, movies are cool, man. And I was like, yes, they are cool. <laughs> he was like, being an actor would be cool. And I was like, yes, it would. And it was just this light bulb moment where I was like, wait, is that something we could do and not like get beat up for it? And he was like, sure, let's go join the drama club. And the next day we marched into our junior high school library and said like, can we be in the drama club? And I'm sure they were like, young men who want to be in the drama club yes <laughs> oh my what, god i love this story so whatever much. <laughs> you want and they were having auditions for the this eighth grade play a stage adaptation of the hobbit and uh i auditioned and was cast as gandalf and actually this great cleveland actor this guy ron newell who is actually in the shawshank redemption and some other movies, he was like just a working actor in Cleveland and director. He directed it. And uh, I mean, I was 13 years old, but I took it super seriously. And the story I always tell around it is um, my dad was a businessman and like he's a hunter and a fisherman and not necessarily like a theater going guy. But when he saw me in this play, he supposedly got like teary eyed and was like really moved by my performance. And he said, I had this booming voice. And he always remembered the first line I had, which was, ah, the Shire, how delicious the morning is in this part of the world. The air is stuffed with comfort. And he would come down to breakfast in the morning and say, ah, the Shire, ah, the Shire. And so it became this thing. And then years later, I brought a girlfriend at the time home to visit my family for Christmas. And I was like, oh, we got to pop in the VHS tape of where it all started. Uh, the Shire, and out comes this eighth grader in a Halloween costume, wizard robe, <laughs> and a fake white beard with like a walking stick that was like some stick I found in my yard. And I'm like, Ah, oh, the Shire! How delicious is this for the world? Yeah, it's got stuff with comfort. Oh, Bilbo Baggins! It's like, Oh no, there's something wrong with this tape. Oh, I gotta oh. Adjust the track. It must be playing at double speed for some yeah. reason. It's been warped. Do you think that you got the part because you actually had your own beard at 13? <laughs> I think that was it. Yeah. That's a brilliant one. I love yeah. that. The other thing I want to ask you about is now that you're on Tommy, do you know that you have your own gifs, your own gifs? Have you seen I these? Have, seen have you seen these? Two. And have you or Emily ever texted a gif of yourself back and forth to each other? Definitely. You've texted gifs of me to you to me, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I from have, there's actually there's oh, like from orange yeah. oh i didn't find any orange ones i just saw all the tommy ones. there's, there's like a there's a raft of tommy really? there's a lot of yeah, the oh, gift, yeah the gift department on tommy is really um, oh my god there's I did like not him know saying this. like i could do so much more for you than just write speeches. write speeches there's like a lascivious one there's uh there's one where you're smoking pot that's a different show oh that's a different show that's this show easy where yeah there's that one I've definitely texted Emily one from Easy where I'm with a female character who says, like, I feel connected to you. And I say, <laughs> yeah, me too. So, ah, that's, marriage. That's a good husband-wife uh, gift. That's a good one. Do you guys communicate? I I could basically only communicate through gifts. Like, that works for me. I used, yeah, to, be we, a bit, I used to be a Bitmoji guy. Yeah. But now I try to only communicate through gifts. I like that. Yeah, we we like a Bitmoji still. Yeah. yeah. Michael has a good um, Will Smith anecdote. 
Oh, do tell. It's so. such a good story. <laughs> Wait, what, where did you work with Will Smith? I didn't see that. Men on... in Black 3. Mm. Oh, Men in Black 3. Right. Is that okay, Michael, if you tell this one? Yeah, sure. Uh, I love this. So that movie, this is fairly well known, was like, I, I'm, I think it came out really well. I like that movie a lot. But it um, had some starts and stops in the shooting of it. And um, there were some script changes here and there. And um, I, uh, I had this little part, but it was like a nice part where I have this, I have the time machine, time jump equipment that Will Smith's character is going to need to go back in time. And so he first comes to me in this like Times Square sort of like uh, electronic store. Hi, how can I help you? We're having an amazing sale on batteries. Whoa, okay, we got other stuff like headphones, adapters, or... You help Boris the Animal time jump. Whoa, whoa, okay, I had to, that dude's a freak. He killed my partner. I wanna know when and where you sent him. What, you think I keep like a logbook? And I give him the goods, and then I'm gonna take him up to the top of the Chrysler building. And we had had a number of these like late night secret like rehearsals, mm. and sometimes like improv sessions where it'd be me, Barry Sonnenfeld and Will Smith and like five Will's assistants who were like on laptops. And I would get a call. I was living in Park Slope at the time. And I get a call at like 9 p.m. from like a PA on the show. And they'd be like, can you get to Kaufman Astoria Studios now to like <laughs> rehearse with Will and Barry? And I'd be like, what? No. <laughs> Maybe like we're sending a car and I would show up and we would like jam and improvise and rehearse these scenes. So that's just backstory in terms of like, I knew by the time it came to shoot, like I knew this thing backwards and forwards and I knew Will kind of in a working way really well at this point. And um, I show up to Steiner studios and they've built this huge replica of part of the top of the Chrysler building. I don't know how high it was, but it was very high so that we had to be harnessed in. And on the top of the Chrysler building, there are these griffin heads, mm -hmm. almost like these lion eagle heads coming out. And that's where uh, Will and I's characters were standing on the edge of this thing. And then he's going to have to jump off and at one point activate the time jump thing. Ah, hey, man, a little help here. Ah, thank you. Okay. You know the rules of time jumps, right? Give me the short version. Okay. You want to save your partner, word of advice, stay away from him. Yeah, they got it. Stay away from K, just kill bars. Now, take these, because it gets pretty windy on the way down. The way down? And with your eyes tearing up, it's hard to read the time dial. Plus, it helps you look like a real time traveler, which is cool. I'm not jumping off of this building. Time jump. And so we're up, you know, however many feet in the air on the edge of this griffin head. And there are 200 or so crew members down below. And they have these big fans blowing. It's all green screen behind the um, Chrysler building replica. And uh, they got these fans going. They're supposed to replicate the alien ships that are coming in. They're blowing our air. And it's the first take. I've got all of this kind of made up time jump gobbledygook that I have to say. And Will and I, they call action. We walk out to the edge of this griffin head thing. And I not only don't know my first line, 
I don't know who I am, where I am, why there are all these people there. And it's just a horrible pause that probably lasted 10 seconds. But for me, it was like 30 years. And I finally just like had to yell, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. Line. And Barry Sonnenfeld yells like, cut, cut, back to one. This is the first take. And um, on this giant, this giant thing. Somewhere, I don't know, 50 feet in the air. So we go and Will and I have this little cubby hiding place. Because even on a big movie like that, we have to get inside this griffin head. We come out of this latch and we're cramped down in this little, you know, we're huddled together. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, Will Smith. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I figure he's like just gonna hate me. And he's just like, oh, don't worry about it. He's like, we make movies in pieces. We make movies in pieces. We're gonna be here all day. We're gonna do it 400 times. I'm gonna forget, you're gonna forget. Don't worry about it. And I say that all the time to people now when someone goes up on set, mm -hmm. their lines. I say, as Will Smith told me, we make movies in pieces. And it was just the greatest gift he could have given me because then the rest of the day went well and I did remember my lines and we did have fun and he could have chosen to be a, the big Hollywood star that he was and is and be a dick about it. And he wasn't, he was really generous. And he was like that the whole time. He would, he was like the biggest cheerleader. He would come on set and just be like, all right, MIB three, here we go. He called me big Mike. And he'd be like, we got big Mike here. It's going to be a great day. Now, as soon as you're moving fast enough, that circle is going to fill up with some sort of green time travel liquid or some such, and it's going to glow really bright. As soon as that happens, you need to break that blue laser line with your thumb to complete the circuit. At this height, that should be, uh, let's see, mass of Earth at 30-something feet per minute. Uh, it's 32 feet per second per second. That sounds right-ish. So that would be, I guess, uh, about two feet off the ground. Yeah, break the laser line? No, don't break it. Not, I mean when I'm fast enough. Sounds good. Wait, do I break the laser line or do I not break the laser line? Do not lose that time device or you will be stuck. In 1969, wasn't the best time for your people. I'm just saying, it's like a lot cooler now. How will I know if it works? You'll either know or you won't. Let's go, MIB three. Now, can you tell when it like your your impression of so of Sonnefeld yelling "cut" <clears throat> as an actor? You can tell when the director's kind of more pissed than not, right? Oh yeah, like, you know a good cut versus a bad cut. A good cut. What does a good cut sound like? Like if you really nailed it and they feel like they can move on, and they're like, "That's a cut." <laughs> cut. We got it. Cut. That's not what you got here. What you got here was like, "Oh, this fucking guy." Cut. <laughs> cut. Cut. God. Act to one, which is going to take us an hour yeah. to get right, to reset. the Griffin head and reset. <laughs> oh my God. Now, is that, that was the movie, I think, wasn't that the movie where for some reason it was a big story about Will's trailer? Yeah. Because I think they filmed part of that right on down our street, on Greenwich Street. His trailer was parked for a number of months while they were filming the movie. His trailer got a lot of press. It was a big... And I remember even at the time thinking like, who, who, who like, yeah, who gives a shit about the size of the guy's trailer? Why was that even a story? Right. Okay, my last one I'm saving because I know this one's probably making you the most uncomfortable, Michael. Long before I knew you, long before I knew Emily, I saw Captain Phillips. I see a lot of movies, right? Sure. Most movies are fairly forgettable. 
But every so often, a fresh face is on screen and you just remember it. You remember something about their performance. And your performance in Captain Phillips was one that I remembered at the time. And I remember thinking like, and I've often like, I'm right about these things very few times. So I remember the ones where I turn out to be correct. Because I don't know, that wasn't very early in your career, but that's probably your first, one of your first large movie roles, right? Yeah. Definitely. So there was something about, the only word I can think of is your naturalism. Get the crew back to the muster stations. Right. Attention all crew, attention all crew, return to your muster stations. Repeat, return to your muster stations. This is not a drill, this is a real world situation. Yeah, Cap. I want to come up to 122. Helmsman at the bridge, second mate and helmsman at the bridge, please. You're good. Bring her on up. Give me U.S. Maritime Emergency. Two skiffs. Can't tell how many they're carrying. Copy that. There's no answer at the U.S. Maritime Emergency line. Where's the U.K. MTO? Right. What's up? We got two skiffs approaching. Get on the radar. Like, compared to Hanks, who's a natural performer, but is always Tom Hanks. But your performance as like the first mate or whoever you were there right, yeah, was something that I always remembered. And I was like, that guy's really good. That guy's going to be successful. And of course, I proved to be right. That's how I like to think of it. <laughs> but Amanda, our, we, you know, my wife, who you guys know and are close to, she told me she doesn't think you like your performance in that movie. Is that true? Well, first of all, Thank you, thank you, thank you. That is the sweetest thing, Jason. And I just mean that from the bottom of my heart. That is such a lovely compliment. I have gone in 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 phases and ships with how I feel about my performance. I love that film. It was really hard to make in both good and 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 hard, difficult ways. I think there were moments when I was probably scared. Like, and I think I can mm -hmm. see it in my face sometimes. And I think it's appropriate for the character, but it, I've never made anything like it in the way that Paul Greengrass, it's almost all improvisation. And um, he really, it's the coolest thing ever. He made us learn everything we could about not only those events that happened over those couple of days, but about being an actual merchant seaman and so that you could know how to be doing your job, like mm. wrote, and then when shit hits the fan, then you can react to it. But it wasn't just about like, oh, how do I respond to Somali pirates attacking? Because that rarely happens. You got to know how to like do the stuff that you do every day. And so there was a lot of prep and um, we were shooting completely on a real work working merchant ship. Um, mm -hmm. The real ship that was attacked was the Marisk, Alabama. And the shipping company Marisk gave us a ship called the Marisk Alexander. And we were shooting um, off the coast of Malta. We were staying in Malta and going out into the Mediterranean every day. So you would go out to sea and be stuck on this ship for 14 hours. And there's nowhere to hang out. I mean, there's no, again, like it's a huge Hollywood movie, but there's no, you know, there's no comfortable chair even to sit in. 
and like there was no catering we were eating the in the mess hall with the actual mm-hmm. merchant seamen who were who were you know navigating this ship every day and so you just get to work and you wouldn't even know what was necessarily going to be what scene you were shooting that day and paul would kind of look at us and go like so what should we do today boys and um you know you would just have to improvise for so long doing talking about stuff you sort of know about but like Mm -hmm. i'm not an actual merchant marine no i like my performance in it i think it's just it's so vulnerable as an actor to watch yourself and i think sometimes in a experience where you're maybe giving an authentic performance it you feel so naked and when i watch it i just cringe a little because i'm like oh god that's me that's me in all of my humanness like good and bad and the thing that maybe felt real and authentic to you watching which i really appreciate to me like it's like when you hear your own voice like when i used to have an answering machine back in the day and you'd you'd come home and you'd someone would call and you'd hear the outgoing message you'd be like that's what i sound like (laughs) are you kidding me oh my god and so i probably dislike most of my performances but I loved making it was just the most unique experience ever as an actor getting to run around on an actual container ship in the middle of the sea. It was crazy. Well, I think that story is incredible that you just told about that making of that. And I think you're right. It's funny how two sides of the same coin for me and the audience at the time, I think that, and that's, and I didn't really remember that Paul, there was a Paul Greengrass film. It makes a lot of sense now because like, you know, United 93 or other films of his that are so naturalistic, probably what he saw in you was that ability to, to be that real feeling in that moment. And, And I think that he's probably smart enough to know that if you had some youthful vulnerability, it would end up playing exactly the way it does in the film because that's what I was responding to as a, as an audience member. And it, I can imagine that's a lot harder to, to be that way on screen than to just be like in a stylized Coen brothers performance where you can hide a little more, you know? Well, I'm also, I'm grateful that I shot it when I did in my career because I had done some film and TV stuff, but I didn't know my way around a set that well. And so I didn't realize how unorthodox the, the shooting methods were. And I think for Tom, there were times when he would be like, wait, so the, when are we getting my close up? Like, when are, <laughs> when are we, when are we covering this? And, and Paul would be like, no, we already got it. And Tom would be like, well, what do you mean? Like, we never laid down marks. Like I never, and, and Paul would be like, no, we got it. We've got everything. Like I covered it. And so it's, it's just that documentary style greengrass thing where mm-hmm. there are multiple handheld cameras going at all times and you're never gonna, you're never gonna cover it in a traditional way. And I think now if I was on that set, I too would be like, wait, but we never, when, when do we shoot my side of that? When do I get mm-hmm. to deliver my performance? You know, <laughs> right. Uh, when do I get to shed that single tear when I know that the close-ups on me and my makeup looks good? And, you know, like it was just, it was such a raw environment. Oh my God. Hank was incredible too. And he was, I spent a night on the ship, just me and Tom. When Tom got COVID, Michael emailed him just to be like, hey, hope you're okay. Tom emailed back within how many minutes, Michael? Uh, half an hour, maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Michael then emailed Tom again. And then we woke up to an email from Tom. So sweet. So sweet. So sweet. And to show you the kind of guy who he is, he was immediately like, how are you? Where are you quarantining? Yeah. Are you okay? How's your family? 
I can't thank you enough for doing this. It was it was as special and meaningful as I knew it would be going into it because you guys are both such special people and so warm. And Emily, knowing that you tried to wriggle off the hook and you sat through this entire thing <laughs> is so impressive to me. I give you so much credit. Hey, thanks. I'm delighted to be here and I love hearing. No, this has been awesome. I've had a delicious time. Well, guys, thank you so much. Stay safe. You too. And, uh, I hope that we return to normalcy soon, and I look forward to yeah. seeing you on screens, large and small, in the near future. All right, Jason. Thank you for having us. Thank you, thank you guys. Thanks, Gary. Well, take care, man. Got to get back. Sure. Take it easy, dude. Oh, yeah. I know that you will. Yeah, well, the dude abides. <laughs> about you, but I take comfort in that. It's good knowing he's out there, the dude, taking her easy for all us sinners. Shush. I sure hope he makes the finals. Well, that about does her. Wraps her all up. Things seem to have worked out pretty good for the dude and Walter. And it was a pretty good story, don't you think? Made me laugh to beat the band. Parts, anyway. I didn't like seeing Donnie go. But then I happen to know that there's a little Lebowski on the way. I guess that's the way the whole darned human comedy keeps perpetuating itself. Down through the generations. Westward the wagons. Across the sands of time until we... Oh, look at me. I'm rambling again. Well, I hope you folks enjoyed yourselves. Catch you later on down the trail. Say, friend, you got any more of that good sass, Marilla?